Welcome to Reason for Hope, where we take your questions daily, well, weekdays anyhow, on the Bible, on worldview, on world religions, uh, especially if you're sincerely seeking and looking for answers for uh, what does life mean? Why are we here? Where are we going? And uh, how do we live our lives? And, and with me today, and my name is Adrian Van Vactor, by the way, and I'm uh, co-hosting on Mondays, which is going to be kind of a fun role to play. And uh, Pastor Sean Richards right here to my right, and across the table is Pastor Scott Richards. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this for, gosh, since 2001. Yeah, <laughs> we've been at it uh, ever since. <clears throat> so. It started as a live broadcast on the radio. And now we've switched to a live stream. You can watch us on uh, Facebook. That's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook. Also, if you search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube, you can catch it uh, live. And you can put your questions there. Also, if you go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, go to our website, you can watch live, and there's a place where you can actually interact and ask questions there as well. So with that uh, being said, how about we take a moment to pray to our Lord and uh, uh, have, ask him to bless our time. Absolutely. Uh, Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to explore your word one question to the heart at a time. We pray that you would bring the people to the broadcast that to need to, to be edified, exhorted, and comforted by your word. We pray that the questions that we answer would be those that uh, you have in mind for us on the broadcast today. Lord, thank you that we have this privilege of being able to see that your word really is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, Lord, whether it's uh, uh, questions about prophecy, questions about uh, personal issues and people's walks with you, uh, whether it's um, even uh, tough questions that have been asked by skeptics or non-believers, we pray, Father, that you would guide us into all truth and that uh, we would once again discover what a firm foundation we have in putting our faith and trust in your divinely inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Amen. So I understand we have a little bit of a prophecy update we're going to start with today. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting one, uh, especially dovetailing with where we're going to be going uh, on our Wednesday evening Oasis uh, series study. We're doing a number of uh, different, uh, uh, I, I, I hesitate to call them topical, because we're focusing in on uh, significant passages of Scripture that uh, believers need to have under their belt if they're really going to have a, uh, a clear understanding of what Bible prophecy is all about, particularly as it relates to the last days and the end times. We were planning on doing a uh, study about Israel's role in the last days. Uh, we are fond of uh, telling on the broadcast here that uh, when it comes to God's uh, program to right this world gone wrong, the return of Jesus, that uh, Israel is God's hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and uh, the Temple Mount is the second hand. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's very interesting uh, to take a look at uh, what the Bible has to say about God's plan for the Jewish people in the last days and the end times. You would think that that would be a, a fairly controversial or an obscure issue, but the Bible is really, really clear on it. And so we're going to explore uh, that on uh, Wednesday night, and we'd encourage you to either tune in by way of the Internet or join us uh, for our Oasis service at Calvary Christian Fellowship at 630 Mountain Standard Time. Uh, if you'd like to join us for that. But uh, kind of dovetailing with this, fascinating uh, article uh, run on uh, Joel Rosenberg's All Israel News site, and uh, we uh, heartily endorse uh, Joel's ministry there. If you really want to stay up to date about uh, what's going on in Israel, uh, I highly recommend uh, that you visit allisrael.com and uh, make it a, a regular part 
of uh, your internet experience. Really great uh, insights uh, that Joel and his writers there provide about what's going on in the Middle East. But boy, today's uh, was uh, really a very interesting one indeed. The headline, studies reveal there are now nearly one million followers of Jesus worldwide of Jewish uh, descent. Uh, and, uh, you know, Joel talked about uh, the history behind it all, and it, and it really is uh, pretty fascinating. Uh, the resurgence of faith in Jesus among Jewish people seems to coincide with the two major events that took place in the late uh, 20th century. The 1967 war, uh, where Israel was able to recapture uh, control over Jerusalem, but also uh, the uh, the uh, movement of the Holy Spirit in the United States uh, that uh, would end up being called the Jesus Movement, or even the Jesus uh, Revolution. Uh, tens of millions of Americans came to know the Lord uh, through this movement of the Holy Spirit, and the Calvary Chapel movement, of which we are a part, uh, emerged uh, from that uh, unique uh, work of God. Uh, in fact, on June 21st, 1971, the phenomena had become so profound that uh, Time Magazine published a cover story uh, on the Jesus Revolution. Uh, there was a... Uh, uh, article in Life magazine that featured uh, no less a person than Chuck Smith uh, on its cover, uh, uh, elucidating this uh, this amazing work of God. Well, a half a century later, there are nearly, according to All Israel News, uh, nearly one million Jews in the world today who believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, and the only way of forgiveness and salvation have chosen to follow him. This is the largest number of Jewish people uh, who have believed in Jesus at any time since Jesus was born in Bethlehem, preached and performed miracles in the land of Israel, died on the cross and rose from the dead uh, some 2,000 years ago. Now, the vast majority of uh, those who believe in Jesus as a Messiah who are Jewish live in the United States. And Joel's article cites a study by LifeWay, the research branch of the Southern Baptist Convention, that found there are 871,000 Americans of Jewish descent who hold the same theological beliefs as evangelical Christians. Uh, this study was commissioned the Alliance for Peace of Jerusalem, a coalition of Christian and Messianic Jewish scholars, professors, and ministry leaders. Uh, really interesting, uh, when Joel found out about this study, initially he was pretty skeptical about it. He thought uh, that perhaps their methodology was a little bit off, but the more they analyzed how carefully the LifeWay people did uh, this, uh, this analysis, uh, the more they were uh, pretty well convinced that these, uh, this is a pretty solid uh, figure. Uh, in fact, uh, a separate study that was conducted by Dr. Uh, Eris Soref, president of the Israel College of the Bible, found the number of Jewish Israelis who believe in J Yeshua as their Messiah, that is the Jewish name for Jesus, has grown to be approximately 30,000 in Israel itself. So uh, again, uh, to show you how staggering all this is, in 1948, when the modern state of Israel was miraculously and prophetically reborn, there were only 23 known Jewish believers in Yeshua in Israel, according to Soref's research. So when you add in 
uh, evangelical and messianic Jewish believers in other parts of the world, including South America, the numbers approach uh, one million and may even exceed that. Uh, you know, experts debate uh, how many Jewish people there are in the world today. Some say 15 million. Others say the number is closer to 17 or 18 million. It all depends how you define who is a, a Jew. But uh, the other thing that's really interesting in this article is that the amount of interest among Jewish people as to the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah promised in their scriptures uh, is uh, growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, the Israeli College of the Bible has been producing and posting online short-form videos of Israelis uh, of Jewish background explaining in Hebrew why they've come to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and how faith in him has transformed uh, their lives. Now, nobody is forcing Jewish people to watch these videos. It's not any kind of coercion that's going on, which is wonderful. But uh, the videos have now been seen by, uh, by over uh, 200 million viewers now. So the, the interest is very, very intense indeed. Uh, well, uh, a number of years ago, uh, Joel Rosenberg was uh, encouraged to share his own personal story uh, of how he came to know the Lord. Joel's testimony alone has been seen by uh, over 240 million viewers. So very, very interesting stuff going on here. Uh, so uh, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that one of the most important signs of the times that we uh, talk about as far as letting us know we're in the general ballpark of the return of Jesus is God's work among the Jewish people. We point to passages like Ezekiel chapters 36, 37, and 38 and 39 as uh, incredibly important for us to understand in terms of God's uh, alarm clock, if you will, letting us know we're in the general ballpark. In Ezekiel 36, for instance, there is a remarkable study, uh, a prophecy, about how Israel would be desolate for centuries, uh, and then suddenly uh, the land itself would be reclaimed and would become incredibly fruitful. Well, when the Zionist movement began in the late uh, 1800s, that's exactly what was happening. Mark Twain uh, remarked, uh, visiting Israel, he couldn't understand what the big deal was about it because all he saw or vast tracts of unarable land uh, broken up by malaria-infested swamps. You know, why anybody would be interested in this place uh, was beyond him at this point. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, uh, the Zionists came and they began purchasing land. They began, uh, you know, again, uh, draining the swamps, uh, taking the, uh, the uh, stones and so on away from the, uh, the areas that were uh, uh, unfit for agriculture. And now Israel is one of the largest exporters of fruit to the entire world. So we've seen Ezekiel 36 taking place. Ezekiel 37 is really interesting. It's the famous prophecy of the Valley of the Dry Bones. If you've heard the old spiritual, you know, God asks uh, Ezekiel, showing him this valley of just skeletal remains, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel said, well, Lord, you know. Well, suddenly uh, Israel uh, or Ezekiel Here's this uh, clacking together, and these skeletal remains come together and stand up. Uh, then what happened next probably caused him to shake in fright. 
uh, suddenly these skeletons began to have muscle tissue and sinews and, and even skin on there, but they were still uh, unliving uh, people. Then the breath of God blew upon them, and these uh, dead individuals that were standing up came back to life. Well, God explains the significance of all of this, that first there would be a physical regathering of Israel back to the land, and then there would be a spiritual rebirth of Israel. They would come to know the true and living God as a result of, uh, of uh, the, this incredible move of the Lord. Uh, this study uh, that uh, Joel Rosenberg points out here and the incredible intense interest among Jewish people, the claims of Jesus to be their uh, predicted Messiah, I believe place us prophetically smack dab in the middle of uh, Ezekiel 37. Somewhere between the time that Ezekiel saw the physical restoration of Israel back to the land, which is nothing short of a miracle, but pretty much on the edge of that blowing of the breath of God back into mm. uh, the hearts and lives of Israel, bringing them back to a saving relationship with God. In fact, uh, we're going to explore this on, uh, on Wednesday night, but in uh, Romans chapter 11, we are told that when all is said and done, all Israel will be saved. That is God's long-term program for the Jewish people. So, you know, there are those that kind of cloud this issue. They uh, buy into ideas like replacement theology that says, oh, well, you know, Israel turned their back on God when Jesus came. And so all of the promises of God have been spiritualized and uh, given to the church. Uh, well, you start going down that pathway. You've got to do a, a huge amount of spiritualization. In fact, you really have to ignore three key chapters in the book of Romans, Romans mm -hmm. chapters 9, 10, and 11, mm -hmm. which describe that God in no way, shape, or form is finished <clears throat> with the Jewish people. Especially as, chapter 11. Yeah, as our, our uh, good friend Steve the Tour Guide, Steve Jass, uh, and you can follow him on uh, Facebook. He's uh, uh, quite uh, open about his uh, opinions on this subject. And but, his virtual tour, Israel on Foot, on YouTube. Yeah, yeah just a really uh, you know, wonderful brother in Christ. But uh, he told us repeatedly that if God does not fulfill his promises literally to the people of Israel, then he's a shyster. He is an individual who is not to be trusted. He's gone back on his word. But we are seeing more and more uh, in this world. And Joel's uh, article on all Israel news, really exciting stuff. Because as we're seeing these things happen, you know, one of the things that uh, the Apostle Paul says is that if Israel's disobedience meant life to the rest of the world, what will their obedience be but life from death? So we might be very well on the edge of seeing this amazing work of God. Uh, we are seeing an amazing work of God, but uh, I, if I read my scripture properly, uh, we ain't seen nothing yet. Mm. And uh, if you've ever known someone who is a Messianic Jew, someone who has put their faith and trust in the Lord, I have yet to find a lukewarm Messianic Jew. <laughs> like Believers 2.0. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they uh, hit the ground running. And, uh, and if uh, you think that the Messianic Jewish people are enthusiastic about their faith in Yeshua as their Messiah, mm. boy, you ain't seen nothing yet because according to Revelation chapter 7, God has 144,000 specially anointed 
uh, individuals, uh, Jewish Billy Grahams, if you will, that are going to be turned loose on the world during the Great Tribulation period that uh, are going to have a ministry that, according to Revelation chapter 7, is going to cause every kindred, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, every language group in the world to be impacted with the love and truth of Jesus Christ. So, very exciting things indeed. Just a, not a random thought, it's related, but what's, <clears throat> there's a partial hardening, and I was going to say, when I went to Israel in 2014, I was ready to do all kinds of events and you know, do my program and share the gospel, and I couldn't get anyone to want to use me there, and it was like, oh, we can't do anything like that in Israel. And, and I, thought, I thought they were sort of freedom of religion, but there was seemingly this sort of this hardness, especially as you go back in time. As we get closer to the, to the time, uh, yeah. there seems to be a lot more openness. I've <clears throat> watched debates where I thought, wow, some of these um, Orthodox Jewish folks, they really despise Christianity, it seems like. Oh, they do, yeah. So what, why the hardening? Is there a theological purpose that God has revealed in his word that kind of gives us an insight into why this hardening is taking place, other than uh, to give access to the Gentiles, those non-Israelite rest of us, to come to faith? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's a couple of insights into this. First of all, it's always been thus. Uh, if you were with us at Calvary Christian Fellowship on Sunday, we're going through the book of Acts. Uh, we saw Peter and John uh, giving their testimony before the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin. Uh, we were told that Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, as well as another a number of other dignitaries, were there. Uh, they had to explain, especially from their background as Sadducees, who denied the miraculous, right? They, uh, they would accept the first five books of the Bible as being divinely inspired, much like the Orthodox do today. But uh, they were also kind of an odd mixture of what we would call Orthodox Judaism and Reformed Judaism because they believed in the first five books of the Bible, but they denied the miraculous. Well, uh, Peter and John have been used by God to not only heal a man who had been born lame, uh, and had never walked in his life, a fixture at the Gate Beautiful in uh, Jerusalem, where you know virtually almost everybody in Jerusalem saw him begging at a particular time, not only healed him, but uh, taught him how to walk before he even hit the ground, which mm. is just an amazing miracle. And we're told that the, these uh, uh, religious leaders of this time uh, which included the Pharisees, who were also enemies of Jesus because he didn't buy into their steel-reinforced spiritual sensibilities that out-Bibled the Bible. Uh, you know, they looked at Peter and John, and first of all, I, I love it, they said they saw the boldness of Peter and John because they didn't pull punches. They said, this Jesus, uh, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead, and there is salvation in no other. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It says when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and saw they were uneducated and untrained men, at least by their lights, they hadn't gone through their rabbinic schools, uh, they recognized them as having been with Jesus. And I, and I love that word mm -hmm. boldness there because uh, the great Greek scholar W.E. Vine uh, defines that word boldness uh, as uh, cheerful confidence. That's the nuance in the Greek. In other words, they weren't standing there, uh, you know, kind of muttering and, and with eyes big as saucers and going, wow, these are the same guys who railroaded Jesus to death, and now they're asking us by what name we've done this, and if we confess Jesus, we're going to get this. 
it says they, you know, I, I just loved the way this was put. In one of the commentaries I read, it said that uh, they wouldn't have been anywhere else and uh, they wouldn't, if they could, have said anything else. It was uh, like a... Defending a home invasion in Texas. I've been waiting for this. Yeah, you know, so you know, they were saying this with a smile on their face, and uh, that's where they the recognition of Jesus came in. And so they warned them not to speak any more in His name. And the famous statement, whether it's right to listen to you, whether to, rather than God, you be the judge. We can't but speak the things which you've seen and heard. And you, you see how. These religious rulers, you know, we would say, oh, well, you know, here we see, you know, this transformed life of Peter and John. We see this testimony they have that Jesus rose from the dead, and they all knew about it. They couldn't really deny that either, or they would have. And uh, you see this miraculous individual, you know, this person who was born lame, now standing before them. They couldn't deny it, but they didn't cave in and believe. Hmm. And so, you know, when I say it's ever been thus, uh, that's kind of what you see, because the Orthodox in Israel, which uh, have tremendous sway on uh, the politics of that day. In fact, Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition is absolutely dependent uh, upon some of these hard-right uh, religious coalitions, which are mainly made up of the Orthodox. Mm. And uh, one of them, Ithamar uh, Ben-Giver, is uh, going to be put in charge of uh, Jewish security. Uh, he and another individual uh, uh, are uh, the, the heads of these parties. And what's kind of coming up is they want to redefine who is Jewish. Hmm. In other words, uh, they don't want uh, people, say, who had, uh, say, a Jewish grandmother uh, to be able to qualify as Jewish. Wow. Uh, they want to tighten it up, so you need to have only a Jewish mother in order to make Aliyah or to be able to be in there. If you confess that Jesus is the Messiah, you are not Jewish. No matter who according, your are. <laughs> according to their their lights. Hmm. So it's really going to be interesting to see how a seasoned politician who has been very warm and friendly towards evangelicals, Benjamin Netanyahu, is able to somehow put all of the pieces together and keep this coalition going on because these religious conflicts are going to be huge. So, you know, when, when, uh, when you say, you know, the, you, know, you ask the question, okay, you know, you know, what does this mean spiritually? Uh, you know, my response to this is that, uh, you're going to see this very same thing. Uh, you know, there were 15,000, we were told professing Jews, uh, as a result of the healing of this man who was was lame at that time well you know percentage wise uh, that was a fairly small figure the vast majority of of jews in israel even during that time uh weren't accepting jesus as their messiah and so you know what we see interestingly uh in uh the, the book of romans is that paul always talks about the idea that god has had a remnant down through time he has always had a small percentage, based upon the total number of Jewish people, of individuals who are faithful to him. In fact, he even uses Elijah as an example of this, hmm. where he complained to God, and he said, uh, you know, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets, and I alone am left. He was kind of crying the blues 
after the famous uh, showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and all that stuff. And, and uh, Jezebel took out a contract on him and said, may God do so to me, uh, and more so if you're not dead by sundown today. And so he flees into the wilderness. He's complaining to God. And God says to him, uh, don't worry. There are 7,000 others in Israel besides you who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who are faithful to me. Now, 7,000 compared to the total population, not a lot. But God has always worked in that way, you know, and, and that righteous remnant principle, I think, is uh, something that really even applies to so-called evangelical Christianity in our day and age. We're seeing a lot of denominations that seemingly have their doctrinal uh, act together, uh, you know, now saying things like, well, you know, maybe abortion really isn't that bad of a thing. Or, you know, there certainly are some places where you can make exceptions. And they profess to be evangelicals. Well, to me, it's the same old righteous remnant principle. Mm -hmm. You know, even among those of us who are professing believers in Jesus, I think the actual percentage of those who really know the Lord versus those who maybe attend an evangelical-oriented church I think it is very, very small. I think it's that Elijah principle again, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so... Uh, is well, it true that in the last days, the hearts of most will grow, the love of most will grow cold? As a result sort of, of lawlessness away. So it, yeah. it seems like as the Gentile church begins to harden their hearts, harden its heart, uh, the Israelites will tend to soften their hearts to God. Is that kind of accurate to say as you, they get closer to the end? You think, Sean? No, I think that God's going to do his work on an individual basis, but when it comes to the role of the end times, it'd be no more a disparity in seeing people coming to the Lord more if they're Jewish and less than they're Gentile during the tribulation. The number's going to be overwhelming. Yeah. But if we ask the question, okay, so is God working in inverse principles? No, he's working on salvation mm. principles. Yeah. That is one heart at a time, one creation mm. made in his image and likeness, drawn to a saving relationship with him. Regardless of their ethnic background, he calls all men to repent. Yeah. Well, thank exactly. God Paul said it was yeah. just a partial hardening. Yeah. Yeah. A hardening in part has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. You know what that tells us? Um, there is, in God's economy, he knows the sum total of all of those who will come to know him in a personal way in this, this odd parenthesis we live in right now. You know, God dealing with the world through the Jewish people, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit, and then God bringing together this odd mixture of Jews and Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, that we call the church today. Mm. But when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then God will again deal with the world through the Jewish people. Now that tells me something. There's a finite number of Gentiles that will come to know the Lord. And if uh, we want to be about the business of uh, doing our bit to hasten the coming of the Lord, I mean, I know there's all kinds of theological implications to that statement, but if we want to be about that business, well, then share your faith, mm. you know, reach out with the love of Jesus to as many people as you can. Maybe you will be given the privilege of being the person who leads the last Gentile, uh, makes up the fullness of the Gentiles, and then the rapture is going to happen. Mm. That'd be yeah, an exciting or, or thing. Or compound to... irony on irony, and maybe the last person to get saved will be one of the lost children. But that's, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. speculation. Yeah. yeah, we are to be, as Paul also said in Romans, we're to be light and salt. And 
He tells the Corinthian Christians that we are to <clears throat> that we are ambassadors. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And that's all believers, not just you know those specially anointed, gifted ones who are good communicators. All of us have been charged with that mission to fulfill the Great Commission. We like to call it at the end of Matthew, where Jesus tells us to go into all the ends of the world, ends of the earth, and make disciples. Yeah, uh, and and so you know, and and the only other thing I'd add to this before we jump into our questions because it, it's such a, a important issue is this: there's so much discouraging news in this world, mm. you know, I, and you know, even putting together, uh, you know, a, a, a an overview of what's going on in the world right now, what's going on in our country right now, legislation that is on the edge of being passed in in uh, Congress and so forth that is, I think, going to really have an impact upon us as uh, believers in Christ and Bible-believing churches and so on. So easy to get down and discouraged mm. and focus in on what's wrong. But, uh, you know, I was so heartened when I read that article on All Israel News uh, that there are amazing things going on. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that, yeah, the mystery of lawlessness is at work. The love of most will grow cold. We understand all these things. But we also understand that uh, when we see these things begin to happen, Jesus said, look up. For your salvation draws near. He doesn't say look down. Mm. He doesn't say be discouraged. You know, we have that blessed hope. And I love, and I'll just wrap up with this, Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teachings that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope mm. and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Mm who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Boy, uh, what an exciting thing to be a part of what God is doing in this world, to be zealous mm. for that, you know, to be, mm. be on fire. That's what the word zealous means in the original language, to be, to be hot or to be ignited. Uh, we need to pray daily for that ignition of the Holy Spirit so that we don't end up uh, one of those people whose hearts grow cold. Is that something we should and can pray for? Absolutely. Mm, awesome. Absolutely. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The word, the nuance there in the language is be constantly being filled. Mm. It's a renewable resource. His mercies are new every morning. Jesus said he would give the Holy Spirit uh, to those who ask for him. And that's not the indwelling. That happens mm -hmm. when we become believers. Jesus doesn't come into our heart and then come out of our heart through his Spirit. He's there. He's not going anywhere. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. But the coming upon power of the Holy Spirit mm. is a renewable resource, and we have to ask for it daily by faith. Mm. Wow. Very encouraging. Well, that's why we call this program A Reason for Hope. We have many reasons for hope in Jesus. Uh, we have a question here from uh, Mary. Is it okay to talk to deceased people? Or does that uh, does this violate the commandment to not pray to any other gods? So <clears throat> it would be extremely disrespectful both to them and to God. Uh, Marie, three passages to keep in mind, and obviously we can go about this in an investigative way. First, obviously, among those who are of the Roman Catholic persuasion, they would heavily encourage prayers to saints. Most of all, Mary. We would 
wholeheartedly disagree and note that as a violation of some fundamental truth of the gospel and in direct contradiction with positive affirmations of Scripture. That's first. Second, when we're talking about how we ought to pray, we should first note that every single time an instruction or an example of prayer is given, there is one and only one audience that is ever given in Scripture without either a direct correction or condemnation to follow, and that is, of course, to God himself. Right. Now, note there is variation of audiences. We know that when the martyr Stephen, or the deacon Stephen, who became a martyr, uh, was executed, he addressed Jesus directly, God the Son. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And heaven didn't go formatting error, and then he suddenly yeah. fell into hell. I'm sorry, your prayer has been improperly inputted. Yeah. Try again. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus always directed his prayers towards the Father, noting a relationship with the Son. He's our model. And then, of course, there are benedictions that are given to the Holy Spirit to bless the church with all spiritual blessing. That is prayer. Now, when we're talking about addressing those to the afterlife, the wishy-washy attempts to dismiss false doctrine continue to abound to this day with the attempt of saying, oh, no, no, I'm not praying to them. I'm asking them to pray for me. And this would be indistinguishable in their eyes to, oh, well, you know, like you tell your living friends to pray to God because you respect their relationship with him. So likewise, you also wouldn't condemn me for praying to someone who has undoubtedly a closer relationship with God being a saint and all. Well, saint or ain't, I don't know. But the point being made (laughs) is we do have a direct address in Scripture in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 where it tells us that there is, note, the opportunity for us to come boldly before the throne of grace. Now, the throne of grace addressed to all audiences. The book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. How would they have understood that? That was the mercy seat, the holy of holies, the place where God directly manifested his glory and no less. So if we then couple that with other statements, I believe it's in 1 Timothy, where it notes there is one mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. Yes, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Then we can pretty much narrow down this uh, controversy in saying, A, there's no positive affirmation. They could wiggle out of that and say, well, I'm not uh, making a positive statement. I'm just addressing them because I respect their walks with God. There is only one permitted, one approved of, one scripturally supported role of mediation, an opportunity to speak between us and God, and that is between God the Son, and that is, of course, exclusively God. Then the third alternative is brought into play. Well, I'm not praying to them. I just want to talk with them. Well, this is where we get into that time-old practice known as necromancy. Uh, Is the Bible, and again, Adrian, you took part in a book that addressed this at length, but it was a part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the Bible's view on that? Well, there are people who try to talk to the dead are strictly condemned. Uh, Executable offense. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, abominable offense for sure. And obviously that doesn't mean we're going to take him out back and old yell or him, but that does mean that they're (laughs) morbid picture, but that does mean that they're not in a position where their walk with God's banging on all cylinders to communicate or seek mediums with the dead, even if it's through prayer. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, the ironic thing is that what's the difference between praying to someone and talking to them? That's what it is. And I, I remember getting into these discussions with some of my Catholic friends who, when they would uh, pray to the Virgin Mary, 
as they would refer to her as, uh, they would say, well, we're not praying to her. We're just talking to her in our prayer. And I said, well, when you're talking to someone and they're not there, you're praying to them. How is that any different than when we pray to God? When you pray to God, you're just you're just talking to the creator of the universe. So yeah. anyone you're talking to who's not in the room is a sense of prayer. So you are praying, uh, but the big assumption is that, that they can hear you. How do you know that the, that the deceased can even hear you? And so I think that why God condemns it is not just because we probably can't communicate with the dead, but because of the occultic teachings revolving around the practices such as uh, spiritualism or those who claim to be mediums or having seances. Uh, I did a program where I recreated a Victorian-era seance, just as you would have seen it in the late 1800s. I did this at Hotel Congress uh, last year during the Halloween month. And so at the end, I had my book, and uh, <clears throat> but I, I kind of portrayed myself as you're going to reenact what they would have experienced in the late 1800s. And I tried to do the best I could to use objects that they would have had at that time, and you know, it's, and this is called the dark seance, so that means there's no light at all, not even the candlelight. Lots of room <clears> to hide. So <laughs> things go bump, things happen, and then I would at at the end of that demonstration, I'd reveal that I'm actually an illusionist and a missionary. And uh, what would it look like for a modern illusionist who uses trickery and deception to create it using modern technology? And then I go on to do some of my more modern material, and of course, blow their minds. And uh, it was a really interesting thing. But what, what I went on to share is that um, <clears throat> we have not found any evidence from any kind of testing that people have ever successfully communicated with the deceased. And the only biblical example would be in 1 Samuel 28, and it wasn't something intended to be successful. The witch of Endor who performed the seance was shocked it worked herself. Yeah. She was a con artist. Yeah, but clearly when God, God was involved. <laughs> and also note, God also dis, uh, ministered incredible judgment on not mm -hmm. only Saul, but his entire family as mm -hmm. a result of committing this sin knowingly. So the point being made, Marie, and again, regardless of intentions, we should make sure our communications with God or anyone associated mm -hmm. with God or any godly pursuit or activity should be informed by Scripture. There's only one approved audience of prayer, and that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is only one approved of mediator. No wiggle room as far as, well, I'm not seeking you know, direct audience with God. I just want to meet in the middle. God himself has exclusively defined himself by that title. Then if you say, oh, well, I'm not speaking to them in a prayer context. I'm just talking with them. As Adrian pointed out, hogwash, but the point still being made is this. That's necromancy. That is a serious sin. Do not entertain these thoughts. Do not entertain these acts. Do not redefine them in spiritualized terms. It is not honoring to your ancestors, who, by the way, are in the presence of Jesus and would be just as much insulted if you considered them a distraction from Jesus, just like they wouldn't be distracted with you. The point being made is that. Hmm. Make sure that you're honoring Scripture, that you're honoring them, by regarding that relationship that they're now enjoying with Jesus, not as an idol, but as an opportunity to pursue fellowship with him like they are. And, of course, make sure that we don't uh, get around bad ideas by calling them bad names mm. or yeah. good names. Yeah. And just uh, as a, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, just as a clarification, when I say recreate a Victorian-era seance, I was by no means attempting to communicate with the spirit world. In fact, people would come up to me before I would do – I was doing four – presentations about, about under an hour long each night on Thursdays through Sundays. 
And I would get tons of people who would come to see the presentation, the show, and ask, can I give you a name of someone that we can communicate with? And I said, no, <laughs> we're not going to attempt to communicate to ghosts or spirits. Uh, we're simply recreating what the seance would have looked like if you lived in the 1800s. So we're creating the, the phenomena, the things knocking, water splashing, scarves flying, and some things that I am, you know, bells ringing on their own, in the dark, telling stories, and creating an atmosphere so that when I presented myself as just a, uh, an illusionist, someone who was presenting trickery through natural means using technology and science, uh, that it would have a greater effect showing that and then I would leave it up to them. i say, you know, some people will walk away uh, believing that uh, communication with the spirit world is possible. And some people walk away going, aha, I knew it was all fake. <laughs> and I said, I'll leave that up to you. But, uh, you know, I made it very clear that what I was utilizing was was tactics yeah. and not genuinely trying to communicate with the spirit world. It was an act. And uh, I, I kind of rem- I would tell this story. I would tell the story of Harry Houdini, who, when his mother passed, very depressed, as one of his close friends said, oh, you know, you can communicate with your mom. My wife is a medium. <laughs> so he uh, goes. Which I and, guess is best than being, better than being a large, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to steal that one. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he goes to this woman and she is going to spirit write, meaning the spirit's going to control her body and write for him. And uh, she says, uh, okay, I'm going to now communicate with your mother, make contact. And uh, she goes into this little trance, perhaps something like that and starts writing, you know, dear Harry, uh, I love and miss you very much. And immediately he gets angry and he tears up the paper and storms out and ends his friendship. Well, that friend was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the Sherlock Holmes character. Yeah. Well, he was an avid spiritualist. They were very into the occult in that sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason he stormed out was because when she was writing, she made two critical errors. Number one, his real name wasn't Harry Houdini. That was his stage name. His <laughs> name was Eric Weiss, and his mom would never call him Harry. Oh, and I, number two, yeah. she didn't speak any English. Oops. So right away he knew it was fraudulent. Yeah. And he... In an attempt to discover whether spiritualism was true, whether communication with the dead was possible, he attended and exposed over 500 seances, dragging them to court and having them prosecuted for defrauding the public. Just like they did in the people of Israel. Yeah, and uh, what's really interesting is that he and his wife made a compact where they shared with each other a secret message, and they made an agreement that whichever spouse died first— the living spouse would hold a seance on the anniversary of the deceased spouse's death. Try to communicate with them using spiritualists, mediums, seances, every single tactic and tool available in the world, because this is right at the, right at the beginning of the spiritualist movement, well, about 50, 60 years after the, the modern spiritualist movement. And, uh, <clears throat> well, Harry Houdini, and, and, and if that message came across, they would know, ah, at least some communication is possible. Right. Well, he died on, uh, I think, October 31st, 1927, uh, got punched in the gut, ruptured his appendix, didn't go to the hospital right away, tough guy, died of blood poisoning in the hospital. But his wife, Bess, held a seance on Halloween for 10 years, every year. And at the end, she said, after faithfully following through the compact, I don't believe that Harry can speak or communicate to me or anyone, and that spiritualism, the modern spiritualist movement, has been found... Uh, without evidence. Yeah. And so <clears throat> that's kind of the 
the sad part of people who, I guess, desire to communicate with their loved ones or the deceased, in that there's no evidence that it's even possible from a from a just a yeah outside looking view. Yeah, you know, the only thing I'd add to this is just in my experience in ministry, one of the ways that people get um, I use the term advisedly uh, deceived, suckered in to the idea of spiritism or the idea of talking to uh, relatives who've passed away, even Christians, um, is that, that, that desire to, to have, you know, that, that, that contact with a beloved person, it, it, you know, the motivation behind it, uh, especially if it's like a husband and wife and married for years, and they just don't know how to, you know, the surviving spouse just doesn't know how to get along without that other person really leaves them very, very vulnerable. But here's where the problems come in. Uh, in one situation, and, and I won't name names, um, there was a person, uh, in our fellowship, his husband passed away and she said that she saw her husband standing at the foot of her bed and giving supposedly a very biblical message. Don't worry about me. I'm with Jesus right now. I'm completely healed. You can go on with your life and so on. Well, you know, she said, oh, I, you know, you know, I was going to sleep and I, I had this, you know, I saw my husband and, and, and she was so excited about that. And he's with Jesus and all this. And I said, well, you know that your husband was a believer and you can know that he's with Jesus based on the promises of God. Oh no, but I had this experience and it was just so wonderful. And, and, you know, a couple things about that. First of all, people will have these experiences, but they're, in sort of a altered state of consciousness, they're falling asleep, you know, they're, you know, and, and you get into the kind of the wish fulfillment thing. And this woman just swore up and down. It was her husband. And, you know, I said, well, you really got to be very careful with that because the Bible says it's given a man once to die. And after that comes judgment, they don't come back and, oh no, no, no. I, you know, and, 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 and it checks out according to the Bible, you know, he's with Jesus and all this. Well, I was, I said, you've got to be very, very careful. Well, that counsel was really on target because this woman had this experience, but kind of like the old Lay's potato chip slogan, bet you can't eat just one. Um, she just couldn't settle for having that one experience with her deceased husband coming back. So she began to speak with him uh, every night. And, uh, you know, well, I, I speak with him, but I, it's not as if I can see him, but I know that he probably hears me. And I'm like, look, you're not supposed to talk to anyone except the Lord, you know? And, and I shared with her, uh, the, uh, the words of pastor Romaine from Calvary Costa Mesa when his beloved wife, Ruth passed away, you know, married for over 50 years. And, uh, I heard him talking on the phone and, and he said, you know, the Lord just spoke to my heart that I've got her and you've got me, and that's all you need. And, 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 and she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I just, you know, it, it gives me comfort to talk to him. And I said, be very, very careful. Well, it, it turned out that this was the old slippery slope because she began then to go to mediums and spiritists to facilitate another encounter with her, her deceased husband who had passed away. And boy, you know, you go down this path and, you know, as you've mentioned before, Adrian, there are these charlatans and uh, con artists 
who will do, and you've talked about the difference between hot readings and cold readings, these, these individuals who are just able to read facial expressions and l- ask leading questions. And, and uh, before too long, this woman made it a habit of uh, meeting with mediums and spiritists. And the scripture is really explicit about this. I, Isaiah 8 and verse 19 says, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they mm-hmm. seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law of the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light in them. And Isaiah goes on to describe the horrible, deprived spiritual condition Mm. of people who go down this particular path. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like, I get it. I get how you could easily be seduced Mm. into wanting to go down this path. But the Bible tells us it's given to man once to die, and after that comes judgment. The death Mm. do not come back and speak to us. And if we're looking for comfort, understand, like you mentioned, Sean, the comfort that God wants to give to us, that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who's been tested in all ways as we are without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace so we might receive comfort in time of need. We can come to Jesus and receive far superior comfort to, than any over-the-top uh, experience. That, that people have. And if, if you know people along that line, you know, like the old Rocky Balboa thing, you know, oh, go to Adrian's grave and I talk to her, you know. Um, you know, I can understand why people do that, and I can understand why they would seek comfort along that line. But, you know, like you mentioned, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, mm-hmm. the man Christ Jesus. Talk to Jesus about your dearly departed. Uh, recognize that they are in a place of incredible comfort. Read Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3 about how God has wiped away every tear from their eyes mm-hmm. and and leave them in the hands of God. Allow the Lord to be your comfort mm-hmm. because if you don't, you could really end up and, and you know, you talk about the satanic aspect of this. Satan doesn't trade so much in, you know, bumps in the night and, you know, false signs and wonders, at least where we are right now, uh, he trades in false doctrine. Mm. And if he can get us to believe things that aren't true about God, about ourselves, about our loved ones, about a relationship with him, then he's one. And he will use every tool in the book, no matter how cruel, no matter how manipulative, to get somebody to start believing things that just ain't so regarding a relationship with God. So we have to be very careful with that. Well, thank you, Scott. Hey, uh, before we go on, I just want to give a shout-out here. Uh, We've got Edward and uh, a group of friends uh, from Mindanao in the Philippines who are joining us. Oh, wow. And uh, Elvis, uh, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing this uh, correctly, who is uh, watching us while doing uh, their housework in Hong Kong. So wow. we're all over the world here. And of I'm course, glad you're able to watch us in Hong Kong. They, and, they haven't been cut off. And, and uh, of course, uh, uh, just welded into their homes. All of our <laughs> friends in, uh, in Africa who are joining mm. us as well. It's just wonderful to have mm. this fellowship uh, that goes out all around the world. Right. Yeah. Well, my battery died, but uh, someone got, asked us uh, on three questions uh, left. Uh, one that you're referring to, this is from uh Mac, who wants to know, how do you know you're born again, although you still desire at times the old life and its pleasures? Well, Mac, that's actually one of the evidences of the born-again life, is it not? 
Yeah. In Romans chapter 7, Paul described this ongoing war between the old man and the new man, and that because of that conflict, he not only knows that he's been delivered from death, but he thanks God for it in the midst of that struggle. Therefore, and this is how the chapter ends leading into Romans 8, significant source of comfort and assurance there, he says, by the flesh I obey the law of sin, right. but by the Spirit, the law of God. Yeah, there's a really uh, clarifying passage along this line, Mac, that I think will help you out quite a bit. Uh, the, the last part of First John chapter 1, you know, the famous line uh, in, in verse 9, if we, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then it says, if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us, for he says we have sinned. And then the next line in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 is, my beloved children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Mm -hmm. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And I love that because here we see this balance. You know, the reality is until we are home, Romans chapter 7 says there's going to be a struggle. Uh, we see in First John chapter 1 and 2 that if we say we don't have a struggle anymore, we're lying. You know, we're, we're just not being genuine. But the struggle is won not by pretending that we don't have sin, but by turning to Jesus, who is our advocate with the Father, who pleads our case with the Father, who not only died to save us, but his continuing life keeps us saved. Uh, and, and so when we remember that, the fact that you got a struggle, Mac, is proof positive that you belong to the Lord. If you didn't belong to the Lord, you wouldn't have a struggle at all. You'd just be letting the flesh go its silly way. And you wouldn't care. Yeah, you wouldn't care. But the fact that you care tells me you've been born again. And then he had another question about uh, an easy analogy to explain the Trinity. And the answer for that, Mac, is biblically. We usually lay it down in the broadcast in four steps. There are four fundamental truths that make up the Trinitarian doctrine that are all based on Scripture. Because I have four minutes, I will be brief. First, that there is one and only one God, that of all the things in all the universe that could rightly call itself God, the sort of thing that would be the highest possible power, there is numerically and fundamentally only one. We can go to many passages for Hero this. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that is very straightforward. Deuteronomy 6.5. The second fact of the Trinity, not only is monotheism, but also unique deity status. There are certain things, certain attributes that can only be truthfully said about God. Notice, I can say the words, let's start in the first verse, that I created the universe. I just said those words in that order, didn't blow up. But I'd be lying if I wasn't God. I couldn't truthfully say that about myself. So if anything out there is given unique attributes, exclusive attributes, not saying that Christians can't model God's traits in other ways, but there are things truthfully that can only be applied to God, that is eternal nature, his status as creator, the fact that he forgives sins, for example, all of these things are important. The third fact, ironically, is that in Scripture there are three distinct persons, not beings, persons, that are given those unique and divine attributes. Jesus is referred to as creator in Colossians 1. The Father is referred to creator in Isaiah 66, I believe. And, of course, the Spirit is noted as our creator in the New Testament and the Old as well. Job notes him as the giver of life, and Paul's letters to the Philippians notes as him, not only the giver, or uh, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, the giver of every spiritual gift that includes life itself. We can give these things and identify these things among the 
three persons that are identified as this one God. Then you say, oh, okay, so God can just be the Father, Son, and Spirit anytime he wants. That's how he relates to us. No, that's why the fourth fact is in place, that the three persons in this unique singular status as God are able to independently and coexisting function apart from one another. Isaiah um, 48 verse 16 and Mark chapter 1 and verse 9 are the best examples for this. There are others. But noting the Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and likewise. John 16 is the most, I think, uh, detailed in this, but the point still stands. When we're talking about the Trinity, stick to where we got it from. Don't look at creation to describe the Creator. And then uh, lastly, uh, we got one minute. Okay, uh, just wanted to jump in on a follow-up on the uh, the idea of mediums and seances. Uh, Elvis in uh, Hong Kong asked, "What about the Witch of Endor in uh, Second in the in First Samuel?" Well, she was probably as terrified as anyone that the seance actually worked. Uh, God used that as a one-off to bring Samuel back to pronounce a message of judgment against Saul. Uh, it was not a comforting message like he was seeking at all. So uh, the, the the fact of the matter was uh, Samuel was pretty peeved that he was part of all of this, but God uh, intervened in that one-off situation that uh, was a pronouncement of judgment. It wasn't a commendation of the practice of mediums. All right, and then uh, lastly, a question from Craig who wanted to know about the rebirthing of the Dead Sea after all the end times <clears throat> talk. We're coming up on the music, so two passages to keep in mind. The most detailed is Ezekiel 37. You can start in verse 7, but the passage specifically that mentions the Dead Sea is going down to verses 10 and 11. You can continue on to verse 12. Ezekiel 47, 7 through 12. Zechariah 14 also mentions it. Yeah, and uh, they've already spotted some uh, freshwater springs, believe it or not, Mm. that are uh, bubbling up in the Dead Sea. So... Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and please check back with us uh, tomorrow, same place, same time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.